human decency is not derived from religion, it precedes it. The religion of one age is the literary entertainment of the next. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Exceptional claims demand exceptional evidence. Welcome to the podcast of Leaders in Free Thought. This is where Seth and I get together and discuss issues of importance to atheists, skeptics, free thinkers, and others who base their lives around reason. We bring you news, interviews, and thoughtful discussion on topics of importance to people in the free thought community. I'm Seth. And I'm Jeff, and you're listening to the Leaders in Free Thought. All right, so we went to the Shambhala Center a while back. You guys actually kind of like this. You guys remember the Shambhala Center? The Shambhala Center is this big Buddhist complex up in the mountains. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous area. And we got a few guys from the center to talk to us. Uh, my name is Michael Gaynor, and I'm the Director of Guest Services at Shambhala Mountain Center. So my name is Joshua Mulder. I'm the director of the Stupa. I've been working here for on this project for um, 25 years, I think. And uh, it was really interesting. I learned a lot. We got a private tour of the stupa, which is this giant sort of temple thing, which was awesome. We're going to take a look at a lot of things that were cool. Uh, it, was, it was really interesting, except for what one of the things they did, which is something that I, I've thought a lot about, is they did a thing call, that I call militant open-mindedness, where they weren't, they weren't thinking rationally about being open-minded. And I was saying things, I, I wasn't saying anything insane, but I was saying like, okay, I have these conceptions about Christianity. How do they relate to Buddhism, right? Because I'm more familiar with Christianity than Buddhism. And I mean, you'll hear it on the tape three, four times. The guy calls me weak-minded, lazy thinking, all these things. <laughs> and that's to me what that is, is militantly open-minded. Everyone has their own deal, man. It's, it's, just, it's just the differences, they aren't there. We should all get together. Is it like a cultural relativism thing? Shamb- it totally fucking is. It's this cultural relativism thing. It's this hippie-ass nonsense. <laughs> and surprise, surprise, I hope you're all sitting the fuck down, but the Buddhists had a problem. The Buddhists were out of control with the hippie mindset. They were all fucking on the road of, uh, of hey, we can all do what we want, and that's probably okay. So here's what I found. I, here's what I think of, is unique about Buddhism. It's that the the monotheisms seem to thrive on guilt right. and shame, and Buddhism is seems to be almost the opposite, and that right. it okay. kind of elevates the human rather than saying, "Oh, you're just a worthless sinner. Uh, you're just a worm. You were created from dust or a rib or or right. whatever." Right. Then Buddhism kind of is is quite different and like you're you're sacred you're divine you shouldn't feel right, shame for right. anything there's you this, know there's this and not to be a douche but like the sort of egotistical aspect to it there's this, almost yeah. there's this uh this importance of the self the importance of introspection might mm-hmm. be a good way to say it that which is only which you can only accomplish in the first world damn you know. straight <laughs> And I had a lot of fun talking to them. I think they were really, really reasonable, and I think I think it was really enjoyable of an interview. But here's here's something 
that kind of troubles me with all religions and Buddhism I don't think is excluded from this in that you kind of have to constantly keep reminding yourself of something that there's no evidence for mm. and it's absolutely not intuitive um, do you know what I'm saying like no like, no when you talk about any religion and I defy our listeners, send me a fucking email at jeffrey.g.davis at gmail.com. Send me the goddamn email. Find me a religion that doesn't support itself based on a position that isn't logically feasible, right? They all are on some level saying, okay, on, on this vibe, you have to take this on faith, whatever that is. I mean, and it could be anything. It could be that Ralph Macchio was the best version of a Mr. Miyagi student you could possibly have. That could be that could be the fundamental tenet of their religion, yeah. but they would say to you, you have to believe that, right? The flying spaghetti monster boiled for our sins. And that's that's the thing about this whole thing is any religion has the tendency to fall back on unfalsifiable, unverifiable truths. And Buddhism is no exception. It's it's very enticing. It's very it's very calming. And honestly, Christianity versus Buddhism, I'd rather every asshole I dealt with was a Buddhist than every asshole I dealt with was a Christian. Of course, I'm not saying of it's course. not. I'm not saying it's not better than uh, than hey the the rapture is coming and let's be annoying about that. But it is pinning your hopes on something that isn't falsifiable. Mm-hmm. Like uh, in in regarding Buddhism, it was. Uh, it was like that we're all one and that like there's no difference between me and you. Exactly. And then like of course when you're all responsible my, all human my being and instincts, I'm an asshole. Yeah. All my instincts, all my evidence that that I've ever seen suggests nay proves that you are a completely separate entity than me and this table is <laughs> completely separate from me and it's a completely different object but Seth, it seems now what like i'm gonna what i'm gonna throw out there <laughs> is are you implying that the guy who's moving on to graduate school is different from the guy who's uh developed an alcoholism issue and uh dropped out of high school are you implying there's a difference there maybe judgmental <laughs> you can't judge can't. seth don't judge i won't judge you can't judge <laughs> you can't judge brian brian you can't judge <laughs> There's no judging. Hans, you can't judge. But you know what I'm saying? Uh, Buddhism has this, call it empathy with skeptical people. This vibe that attracts skeptical people. Yeah, maybe, because it's not, there's not a whole lot of supernatural. You know, there's not like a real deity involved in Buddhism. There's not a whole lot of uh, science denial, I guess. Mm. Um, in Buddhism, which is certainly attractive to someone with my personality right. and with my mindset, anyways. <laughs> no, there's a there's a Buddhist <laughs> book called The Universe in a Single Atom, and one of the points that the Dalai Lama makes in it is essentially science, when empirical evidence proves that something is wrong, when empirical evidence says this is this, that is that, here's what is going on that religion should adapt to that, that Buddhism should adapt to that, that that's the way that is. I think that's... Which is cool with me because... That's awesome. That's Obviously, Christianity does quite the opposite. Well, and like empirically, I need to take a leak. 
and, uh, and the Christians might disagree with me, but that's what's going to have to happen. Go take your leak. <laughs> Seth and I got a great chance to head up to the Shambhala Center. We got a chance to talk to a few guys. We got to talk to Mike and Josh. You can check them out on our uh, our blog. We have a couple of pictures of them. And they were insanely helpful, right? I mean, I will agree. They were very generous with their time. I mean, like we said before, no one really has to give us any kind of time. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and no matter... What disagreements I might have with them? I mean, I disagree with their their view of, of sort of the functionality of the universe. I disagree with them on a lot of different points, but they were insanely helpful. We got a a great view, a sort of private tour of the stupa. We got a great hike with them, where they are very respectful, and and we were very respectful. We had a good conversation. Yeah. And and no matter what the disagreements, I hope our listeners would understand how helpful and how kind they were to us. Yeah, they definitely. This is an archery, Japanese uh, Zen longbow archery. Okay. And uh, usually there's, uh, when you're actually shooting this, you put little targets underneath there. Okay. And you stand over here and you shoot. And in the summertime when it's uh, really hot, the deer lay it down there to get out of the shade. And so you have the targets and then you have a couple deer and then you have another target. <laughs> you gotta be really careful. Yeah. I can't imagine the karma of shooting a deer. No. With a longbow. Yeah. Goes a long way. Yeah. Help, whatever. So to speak. Yeah, what's the thinking behind the archery? Like, what is that? Well, there was a... There was a 19th generation samurai uh, who is the imperial bowmaker mm -hmm. to the king of... I mean, to the emperor of Japan. And he met uh, Trumper and Pache. And uh, they liked each other. And so, <clears throat> he sort of joined these two. He comes here and teaches every year. <clears throat> He's uh, pretty old now. And uh, so he likes teaching here better than in Japan because in Japan people are just uh, mostly just want to hit the target. You know, they they want to get the kudos for <laughs> hitting the target. Yeah. And actually, the practice is uh, how you you open up, you connect to your environment, to the target, mm -hmm. and uh, with a without this sort of motivation of actually hitting the target but being open to the target mm -hmm. and you open to the space and uh, so it's much more training the mind and how you you can open up to the space and then at that point you can expand so you it's a very uh, sort of like I don't know if you know like Japanese have a lot of like like tea ceremony mm -hmm. yeah. everything is sort of ritualized so there's a series of mo movements they're very efficient movements effective movements you know like how you put on your glove how you how you aim how you look how you stretch the bow okay. yeah. 
So is there a significance to the path as opposed to? It's the way to get there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so like you're coming from a city mm -hmm. and you got the speed of the city and you got the, like your motivation that you're going to get this done and, and this done and all this done before lunchtime, right? So you got this. So the right. path actually, when somebody comes here, path actually makes them slow down a little bit and start breathing. You yeah, know, you start feeling that you especially you're considering the altitude. Breathing, yeah, right? exactly. You makes start, you focus on your interview. <laughs> you start feeling your body because you're, you know, you're walking uphill, and uh, yeah. the whole thing is, is you're coming a little bit more grounded. Okay. I've know? always enjoyed walking a lot more than driving or biking or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. So in particular, this uh, this trail goes to the parking lot and it's sort of curved, mm -hmm. like a tail of a tiger. And uh, tiger is uh, one of these, on these prayer flags, there's uh, four little animals. One of them is a tiger. And tiger is a quality of being uh, very much grounded, like a tiger in the jungle with a paws. Okay. And uh, what are you doing is you're, you're, coming, you're coming into your body and that's uh, basically mindfulness practice. And so you start becoming aware of how, you're, how you move in the, in the world and how your thought patterns uh, arise rather than you just buy into whatever thought arises. Like you see a pretty girl and you know your, your mind is gone <laughs> like that. Yeah. You know, so it's actually you see that arise and then you you decide what to do with it. So the mindfulness aspect of it is that you see what is virtuous and what is non-virtuous because over your lifetime you've seen your mind arise and grasp at something and then you wake up with a hangover the next morning and you think, well, <laughs> maybe that was, maybe those last couple drinks weren't a good idea after all. You know? It wasn't nearly as brilliant as I thought I was. Right, right. So then, what you're doing is you're seeing what's virtuous or what's helpful, what's beneficial, and what's, what's actually, it depends from your own experience. It's not like somebody says, well, you shouldn't have drank that, but you, you learn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> right. So what brought you guys to, I guess, Buddhism in general and maybe this center in particular? So for me, I was doing uh, martial arts and uh, I asked my teacher what a good uh, book to read would be. And he said uh, Tao Te Ching, also known as the Lao Tzu, which is a Taoist text. And so I read that and I was really blown away. And uh, so my question was, this sounds great, but how do you get there? How do you develop a mind that has that kind of wisdom, uh, presence, compassion? And uh, if you read around in Taoism, you quickly bump into uh, Zen, or in China, Chan Buddhism, uh, for various reasons there, those connections. Um, and so I started reading about Zen and then about Buddhism in general. And, uh, to check out different places for meditation instruction 
<laughs> and then a friend of mine in school, when I was in university at the time, a friend of mine uh, mentioned that there was a, he belonged to a center and they were having some training and so I went for a weekend program and um, found meditation practice incredibly challenging uh, but uh, kind of knew that this was a really wholesome thing to do to uh, watch your mind and try to develop some ability to have direct experience uh, of the phenomenal world of oneself mm. and uh, the, kind of the process of uh, first building a powerful tool out of your mind so that if you lead your mind to do something, it does that thing. It doesn't always flitter around. So you develop some kind of powerful tool and then you uh, start to bring in some qualities of compassion. Um, and there are certain practices that you do, that you can do that uh, uh, just kind of help rewire your, the way most of us instinctively think about ourselves first and you start to think about others first through uh, structured meditation practice. And that opens up a certain amount of space because it's you know have that claustrophobic me uh, starting point in your relationship with the world. What you find is that uh, some kind of insight, some kind of ability to actually take some time and space and see things clearly, mm. arises, and then with that arises hopefully some ability to actually be of benefit. So I was really taken with this uh, this process of first training your mind then working with compassion and insight and skillful means to actually be able to be helpful. A few years ago, I, I tried meditating for one or two years, and I, like, like you said, it was kind of challenging. In, in my experience, when I first started, it was I would fall asleep mm -hmm. in the beginning, and then when I, wouldn't, when I got to the point where I wasn't falling asleep, it was like my mind was just racing. My mind couldn't focus because I, I tried to train my mind to clear out you know, all my thoughts. Mm -hmm. And it was just so that was probably the most difficult part was like to stop all the thoughts from, you know, just like random what I consider meaningless thoughts, um, just like coming in and kind of disrupting the meditation, I guess. Was that your experience or was it different than that? A little different because I had a different paradigm to work from. From my perspective, what you're trying to do is impossible. You can't stop the mind. It's going to continue moving. There's going to be thoughts arising. So what you're trying to do is uh, develop a relationship with that. If you try to stop the mind, it's going to be like being on a horse that you're trying to tame and just continuing to dig in the spurs. You know, you're just going to make it more and more wild. Um, so it's a lot more about uh, developing a relationship with the thoughts as they arise, uh, observing them, and then seeing how there's, uh, in every thought, there's some kind of wisdom, there's some kind of intelligence along with whatever confusion and whatever energy is there. So the calming process per se, which is what I think I'm getting from what you were trying to seek there, is really very much a byproduct. It's like you're not seeking to get calm, you're seeking to develop a relationship with the, the functions of your mind and the interaction of your mind with the phenomenal world. And you don't do that by squelching stuff. You do that by opening up to things. So it's a, it's a kindness, it's being kind to oneself. And what do you what do you mean by that? Well, your mind you, your thoughts arise, and you think, oh, this is an irritating thought, or this is a passionate thought, or this is an aggressive thought, and I sh I shouldn't be that. So the point is that you are that, and you should have loving kindness towards that. Whatever arises is fresh and and is okay. 
so that way like like you know you're not trying to like squash it you're you're trying to find out who you are you know and you're and you're actually looking you're willing to look at your dark corners you know all the things in your mind that are you know are a little embarrassing so in meditation you're actually allowing yourself to uh, see what arises and be there with it you know it's like it's the same thing as if you were with your friend and he was having a hard time and he was having an emotional distress you wouldn't you wouldn't be be there trying to beat him up you know <laughs> like don't think that don't do that don't go there you know you 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 create a space around sort of a compassionate space around that person and and let whatever arises arise just kind of roll with it you roll with it yeah yeah and that way that person can express whatever needs to be expressed and then start relaxing a little bit about it you know it's not going to make it go away because it, it, it's an issue that needs to be dealt with but so the same thing with your own mind you know when you're on your own like private meditation when you're actually you know being with who you have been for your whole life and you start thinking well who is this that I'm with for my whole life and uh, so that's a little bit tricky because we don't want to be neurotic we don't want to have that persona but you know we have those issues so and uh, and letting them come up like you know there, there is wisdom there's intelligence in whatever whatever you do whatever arises so you so both things happen at once you know in this tradition Neurosis and wisdom are the same thing. Exactly the same thing. What's the biggest change, I guess, you've noticed in yourself? Going maybe from a pre to a post meditative lifestyle? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, not post meditative because I'm still trying to meditate. <laughs> okay, right. But uh, I understand the question. Um, I think for me it's that there's just some relationship with what actually is. I. Uh, detect my own deception and I can get out of my way a little better and I can be a little kinder to people so okay so now we're we're getting close to the stupa what silly question what is a stupa what's the traditionally a stupa stupa actually means heaped up and uh, in Tibetan it's called a chotin chotin means place of offerings so it's sort of like um, a heaped up place of offerings but it also represents uh, the five elements, or the actual what the heap is made out of. So the five elements are earth, water, fire, wind, and space. Now, is that design um, something you would find throughout, like if we were to go visit a stupa somewhere else, or is that your guys' interpretation of a design? No, it's a it's a it's, it's based on a Tibetan stupa. So all stupas are somewhat similar. So you mm -hmm. have uh, pagodas, and you have chortons in different places they look slightly different but the the basic elements are the same this is sort of a progression of, of uh, your life and uh, the moment of death so when you're young <clears throat> you uh, you have a facility with the earth you know like a small child will fall down and get up and then laugh mm -hmm. and as you go older you lose that and, uh, and when you're young, you know, the most important things are the physical things in the world. You know, what kind of tennis shoes you're wearing or something like that. Then the then your emotional body, the round water body, sort of the, the that system becomes more important. And, 
and as you get closer to death, then sort of the base emotions, like just really basic things about love. The conflict, conflictions uh, you sort of let go of. And then, then you just have the breath, which is the wind at the very top. And then at the moment of death, so all this sort of dualism, the most dualistic element being the earth, all this sort of duality become, come in, merge into non-duality. And then you go into this sort of consciousness or element, which is all you have left. So that's sort of one of the reasons meditation's uh, a good thing to be curious about is because um, sort of a practice for death because you know all these other things start falling away through your life and you're, you're you end up with your mind or your heart your open heart and that that is what you're left with in any case you know like if you if somebody dies you know you're thinking about before they die you think about your mustard on your hot dog and then they die and all of a sudden everything is opened mm -hmm. everything is a blank everything is sort of you're open to the universe so that's okay. sort of that moment that that moment that always arises that you want to start becoming aware of and not being afraid of. Because at the time of death, the same thing's going to happen. You're going to be groundless. You know, you're no longer going to have a body. You're going to be completely groundless. You're sort of, you know, your attachments are going to be gone. Okay. So then you're left with, with your, your mind essence or your open-heartedness. And, and so that's the uh, same thing in every, every moment you're, this, this happens. You know, is that you have a non-thought and then you have a thought and then you progress from there. So the same thing like when you wake up in the morning, you sort of start at that non-thought. You wake up in the morning, especially if you're in a, a, somebody else's bed, and you will open one eye, or you're in a hotel or something like that, you open one eye and you think, where am I? Who am I? What day is this? And you, you start cognizing your whole world, you know? You start there, you start, you start right underneath the crescent moon, sort of that point of non-duality, and then you, you start breathing, you realize you're breathing, you're alive, you have your base emotions, is this safe or unsafe area? You feel, okay, is this safe? And then you have your emotional body, and then you think, that round part of the stupa, and you think, oh, yeah, this is fine, it's Monday, I gotta be at work in a half hour, I'm late, I gotta get up, shave, you get your, you go down, you get very much into the earth section, the square section and you're having your breakfast and things and all of a sudden your world is completely solid again you don't remember that it, it came from this open space mm. but but every moment it's the same thing before you think of something there you have open space and then you start thinking about something and then you start a whole uh scenario interesting so like a, a cyclical reconstruction always yeah every moment uh life and death it happens and in the dream state it, it's also a good example so does that play into like a a reincarnation type of idea, or well, is that even specific to your your type of? Yeah, we don't. Or? We have this real because we don't believe in a self. Okay. And so it's hard to say. Well, yes, yourself reincarnates. Mm -hmm. What 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 might you might say is what what happens is that propensities recreate themselves. So as an example, like if I'm a real angry person today and I don't deal with my anger today, tomorrow I'll probably be an angry person again. Okay. Right? So there's a propensity that, that continues. Okay. Yeah. My uncle considers himself a bit of a Buddhist, and he believes, he's told me uh, once or twice, that he doesn't believe there's any kind of separation between me and, like, say, a rock. That's right. And so is that, I guess, essentially what... Yeah, that's non-duality. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
So it's, it's great like deep ecology too, because there's no difference between you and the rock or the earth or the sky or the wind or the water. And which is not to deny that experientially we, you know, have a sense of self. I have a sense of who I am and what my stuff is and what I do. <laughs> so that's not denied, uh, but it's contextualized within the understanding of the in interconnectivity. Yeah, so usually we think our thoughts are who we are, right? But, but Right, I think therefore I am. <laughs> right, but it's not, we don't put it in the context that we have this vast open wisdom, mind, open-heartedness. That's where everything arises out of. You know, so there's these little like waves on an ocean, right? So we see the waves and we think that's that's the important thing, but we don't we don't have a sense. Usually, sometimes we don't have the depth okay. of the ocean. It's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. Oh, what, yeah. What you find is you start to meditate. Eventually, often, you know, possibly, because uh, there's no guarantees. Um, <laughs> or maybe I should say what I found is that I start to see the ways in which I uh, support that construct of who I am and uh, the problematic aspect of it, which is uh, you know, defending it against things that I feel threaten my sense of self, uh, trying to seduce in things that I want to support my sense of self or stuff that's too overwhelming, I just ignore it, try to uh, bypass it or pretend it's not there. So there's all this emotional turmoil that's used to uh, support this artificial construct which is myself as a separate ongoing entity um, so it's an interesting balance to you know not deny the uh, the importance and the vividness and the uh, uh, utility of our experience um, but at the same time to not uh, buy into and generate all the conflicting emotions in order to support it Okay. Um, so with the space that arises from meditation and contemplation and studying you know, the mind and that kind of thing, uh, you start to hopefully get a little bit of space to be able to let go of some of those things. You see them arise and you go, oh yeah, that again, that again. All so right. you can probably never get rid of that, that part of you or that voice that constructs this kind of meaning or this identity or this association with different groups or uh, countries or whatever it's, it's a just pretty interesting question um, and I think to really talk about it you know some things take a fair bit of study meditation and contemplation because uh, it's complex stuff you know the, the simplicity side of it is that on some level it never goes away uh, because as we said before uh, there's wisdom you know, so, for example, if you've got a puppy that's been beaten, it snarls to defend itself. So the snarling could be considered, if it's taken out of that context, to be confusion. But there's a lot of intelligence there because he's defending himself. And the same with us. Because we're not separate from our context, the world we live in, and because we, you know, have all these things that are painful, uh, the world is a pretty painful place in some ways. Um, the confusion that arises and the wisdom that arises is very close, one could say the same. So what you're trying to do is let go of the confusion part and cleave to the wisdom part. So that process means that, it, yes, you're right, it'll never go away uh, even if you achieve some kind of complete enlightenment, whatever that is, because <laughs> um, there's wisdom. And there's always things arising, you know, there's always 
irritations arising. So you're always going to have a reaction. There's always, you know, a, a rub. It's it's how you deal with that rub. Is what's what the difference is. Yeah, you don't want to separate from the world, so you're always going to be experiencing pain because there's some horrible things happening out there. You know, some stuff that's really sad um, and worse. So to try to protect yourself from that would be the only way to not experience pain and suffering and confusion. So as an example, like if you look at the, the stupa, it has, it has four gates on it. You can see three of them. And the one right. on this face is, has, is the main color is blue. And the blue represents um, clarity or mirror-like wisdom. <clears throat> and what that degrades into is anger or aggression. And so an example of how that happens is that, say you're driving down I-25 and somebody, uh, and it's early in the morning going to work, and um, somebody pulls in front of you and beeps their horn and flips you the finger, and, and all of a sudden you, you go from this sort of sleepy person who's daydreaming and thinking and just little bob, bob, bob thoughts. All of a sudden you're completely awake, you're checking your mirrors, you're, uh, all your sense perceptions are awake because you, you might be endangering somebody else. And uh, so all of a sudden that person has completely you know, liberated you from your confusion for a split second. As soon as you decide, oh, I'm safe, this is fine, then you, then you have two choices. You can stay in that open state of mind, or what I would do is say, fuck you get off my road I pay my goddamn taxes and so there's that that run that one moment that okay the world has woken you up like this breeze has woken you up and can you stay in that can you just relax in that space really genuinely just relax in that space and appreciate it or you need to shut down and you need to say Oh, this wind is drying off my lips. It's irritating. I need some chapstick. I need this. I need that. Or, or get pissed off at the guy who's, you know, turned off and he's in Loveland already. And he's happy, but you're still pissed off and you're still angry, and you're driving, and you, and, and so either you get angry right away or you 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 embody it, and then the next time you pull up to your house or where you're working, you first person you see, you're you're angry at them, you know, for you don't know they don't know why. So you just sort of feed yourself that rat poison, mm -hmm. you know, and you think that rat, you know, you think that anger, feeding that anger, that loop, is hurting that person who went to Loveland, but they're happy in Loveland, and you're just doing this to yourself. You're spinning your own wheels and creating your own distress. But the main point is that it, it can't, that it's that one moment, and it, it, that moment happens all the time, is that you, you decide what you want to do with with, the, with your experience. Mm -hmm. Do you want to use as, as a possibility of waking up or a possibility of getting uh, going into your own distress? Mm. So you create your world that way. Interesting. Yeah. At the same time, it's kind of hard, I think. Maybe if you get, if you get really angry, then, you know, this adrenaline starts pumping, you know, and you can't, you can't control your what, if, what the hormones that your your right. glands produce and yeah, so yeah. you have all this adrenaline going and you know i guess you can choose to kind of ignore it or you can choose to yeah but that adrenaline it. is like what same thing as you're playing basketball or something like that you know you have all that energy and you so you, everything is everything is there at you know so it depends on how yeah you can 
It's true. It's very true. Yeah. And that's it's like lust too. Yeah. Right. Of course. <laughs> lust. Or, yeah. Or ignorance, like just backing off and just like trying to ignore the whole world. It's all. All those things are. But being able. To, that's why, you know, if you if you meditate, you see that happening in your mind over and over again. That sort of thing. That emotion. That adrenaline. And you just sort of get used to like not buying into it, not feeding it. Not that's the main thing is not to feed it. You let it arise, but you don't feed it. You know. Very cool. So some of the things that are important in terms of that one is the meditation, where you're developing a strong, stable, vivid, clear relationship with experience, um, where you can actually have a disciplined mind, um, and then some kind of contemplation of your experience and then study so that you get a vocabulary kind of draw a map of the mind and you put all that together and then you actually start to see that you have choices you've got more space around your experience you've got an orientation towards compassion towards uh, characteristics or qualities of mind that are useful uh, that are beneficial um, and so step by step you start to set the situation so that when that moment of choice arises you can make the right choice. You can make the choice that is more beneficial. Right and wrong is kind of slightly artificial concepts, but you can make choices that are more beneficial to yourself and to, to your well-being, to, to the world. Yeah. Alright, so we've actually made it into the stupa now, and there is a large sculpture. Let's have you guys describe it. Okay. Uh, this is a uh, image of a Shakyamuni Buddha, so again, the historical Buddha. And it uh, weighs 14 tons. Eventually, he'll be filled with uh, prayers, different prayers in different parts of his body. Uh, representing like bringing health and well-being to the community you know this area uh, and then the loving-kindness kind of prayers altruistic prayers for the whole world benefit of the whole world when you say filled literally uh, physically or physically or? yeah so you see on the either side of the Buddha there's a there's these little boxes mm -hmm. and those are actually texts so those are all the teachings of the Buddha hmm. and the commentary on the Buddha They'll actually go, this whole library will go inside of his chest. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I know, Buddhism is kind of sui generis, I guess, when it comes to most religions, in that there isn't like a supernatural component to it, or a, or a god figure. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. It's non-theistic, which means that it's not atheistic, or theistic. The, initially, it's the quality that you, uh, the image is that somebody shoots you in the eye with an arrow, and you don't immediately start thinking, uh, who shot the arrow, why did they shoot the arrow, and you go into this whole logic of how the world came to be and who created it. The main function of Buddhism is to alleviate suffering. So the main thing is you get the, you get the arrow out. So that's the initial, that's sort of, Buddhism is very sort of um, uh, basic that way. That's the initial thing, is how to alleviate suffering of oneself and others. Yeah, so whether or not there are gods, 
or a god isn't the point of Buddhism on that level. Okay. Um, at the same time, uh, as you start to open up to the world from a non-dual perspective, so not God there, me here, or God's there, me here, or powers there, me here, there's uh, the potential to see that it's a very interesting, alive universe with uh, different qualities of energy, of potency, of possibility that exists in different places, but that we're not separate from that, but that there is, again, that experiential separation or experiential distinction, perhaps, might be a better way to put it. So, gods, goddesses, you know, it, it becomes a much more interesting question for me personally. So I did some qigong for a while, and uh, it's a Chinese form of like meditation, energy control type thing. And one of the the meditation there, as I understand it, is a little bit different. That you're focusing very hard on your breath. There's different. I don't know if you guys call it a bridge, but things that are supposed to keep you conscious of of the world, maybe to keep you from doing the falling asleep thing. And uh, it, it was interesting. I, I really enjoyed it. Plus, actually, the type I was doing was, uh, I, sh- I shouldn't say super physical, but it actually, uh, it actually did help me a little bit in working out. It was, uh, it was an interesting sort of... Uh, working out like lifting weights or a different kind of working out? Yoga style, maybe, uh-huh. would be the way to describe it. Like you tense and relax and tense and relax and sort of different postures and different poses and things along those lines. In, in what I did, I was, I was very... Or sort of facile and surface. I didn't get into a lot of the super depth of it. Something I was going to ask when we were outside, we were talking about sort of, sort of different, different maybe components or aspects or, or focuses of, of, say, religion. And one of the things that comes up from studies over and over again that I see at least is that the, the benefits of meditation and the benefits of, of intense prayer are very similar. Um, and I was wondering what your guys' take might be on that. It's, it's, it's a rich question. There are... Uh, you can double it up if you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll live. Yeah. There are a lot of uh, kinds of meditation. Um, and a number of kinds of prayer. Uh, there is, with prayer, that intention of mind. So there's a personal experience of it that has an effect on your being. Um, and then there is a thought that beyond our dualistic experience, that uh, prayer and intention uh, can have an effect on uh, the phenomenal world around you. Um, it certainly helps uh, or is uh, very important in how we construct our phenomenal world, our experience of it, how we define our relationships and the various things we call entities within it. Meditation, there's a, a lot of different kinds. Even just basic sitting meditation, you can start with a very focused one where you're sort of bringing the mind in and then through various stages you can open up so that you're really uh, in a very unstructured situation where you're developing more of a relationship with space. And that's just with the breath meditation. Then there are meditations that include contemplation, um, there are meditations that uh, could be called meditations um, that involve visualization, hand gestures, uh, various postures and such. And with those, 
they tend to be very particular in a certain sense in that uh, they can really powerfully help you generate certain very awake qualities of mind, um, whether that's a very uh, energized sense of space and engagement and being in space, or uh, a sense of real offering of everything, complete letting go, um, or appreciation and gratitude. So it's very, very rich. There's many, many kinds of meditation that all function in some, with some similarities, a relationship with space, a relationship with mind, and a relationship with developing uh, a mind that is useful in certain ways. And that brings me to a, an article that I read. It was in The Guardian like a couple of weeks ago, which is like a UK rag. And <laughs> it, was, um, it mentioned Shambhala, and it, it said, <clears throat> in 2007, there were some, I guess, scientists or doctors that came here and studied people who were meditating. Um, I don't know. If you all are familiar with that, if you all are around for that, uh, the conclusion from, from at least the, the author of the article, I didn't look into the actual scientific data that they, that they got, but it was, the conclusion was that meditation can help you, can help stop or even reverse aging by something like telomeres, I think, in the chromosome, which I thought was kind of strange and perplexing, and I didn't know if y'all had any ideas or opinions on, on that. Uh, well, I'd, I'd, I'd probably trust the research. Uh, Alan Wallace from University of Davis, and they were, they had three or four, uh, they probably had seven, seven scientists here, and they'd, they'd you know, take blood samples and saliva samples you know, a couple times a day, and they had a control group that wasn't meditating and a group that was meditating. So I don't know. I, I haven't. I hadn't seen the uh, results, but it sure isn't the point, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. You know, it's like something tastes good that you cooked. It's fabulous. You know, it's a wonderful thing. Um, but uh, the point of meditating isn't to be younger. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I'm 75, so I'm doing pretty healthy still. You look incredible for 75. <laughs> <laughs> Get a picture of you before we go. I'm gonna start meditating now. No, really, it's it's time. That's <laughs> no. Um, okay, so kind of bounce around a little. Just a couple of questions I had, just in general. Um, is there a Buddhist? I don't know if myth is the correct. I, I hate to offend you guys with that terminology, but is there a Buddhist creation myth or a Buddhist cosmology sort of, of Buddhism? Yeah, just or an under, a metaphysical understanding. Like, what would what would the Buddhist take beyond that, on that kind of, or at least your guys' take on... There are cosmologies and different kinds of Buddhism. I think one, one thing that should be really clear is that there isn't a homogenous Buddhism. Mm -hmm. You know, there's different, um, different larger traditions that are, can be very, very different. Um, and then within that different streams of uh, practice and insight and expression, and then uh, different teachers can say very different things as well. Um, so, cosmology, certainly also it's important to understand that we're in the initial stages of the movement of Buddhism from Asia to the Western mind, so to speak, that meeting of the Western 
experience, the wisdom and the confusion and the tradition of Buddhism that brings with it, you know, Asian aspects of wisdom and confusion, as well as the tradition in which the, 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 the actual practices of Dharma that rest within that cultural context. So there's a very powerful historical moment right now, two uh, incredible wisdom traditions coming together. So the Buddhist cosmology, or a Buddhist cosmology, or the cosmology expressed by certain sects within Buddhism, and it's interesting, it's uh, quirky sometimes, <laughs> you know, the notion that uh, stars are pinpricks in a cloth. So I'm pretty sure that's not true. <laughs> Um, seems less than accurate. <laughs> seems less than accurate. Um, so, you know, what was going on when someone said that? They were trying to use their intelligence to make sense of the universe. Okay. And they had access to certain things um, and not certain other things. Um, so what I'm trying to get around to saying here is the Buddhist cosmology is interesting to me and sometimes uh, it's a vehicle for expressing certain kinds of insight. But there are parts of it where with my modern Western mind, I'm going to say, uh, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. Okay, now something you touched upon when you were talking about that was uh, the idea of just being sort of at the beginning of bringing this to the West. Something that I was wondering about, one of the things um, that comes up a lot within skepticism and things like that is um, proselytization and sort of the pushing of different messages. Uh, typically, we, we specifically talk about, you know, maybe a Christian right sort of movement, but there's a lot of religions or, or faiths or, or philosophies that have a, um, a proselytization component. And I was wondering, is there, is there something, is there a push within Buddhism for that? Maybe within other sects or in the U.S.? It's something that I haven't seen, but that obviously doesn't mean that it's not happening. Uh, I mean, overt proselytization is, is, some, is something. Uh, I think the drive when you have something good mm -hmm. to share it. Uh, is in everybody. Right. Um, you know, if you take a bite out of something and you with someone you like and it tastes good, you you know may want to share that with the other mm -hmm. person. So that drive is definitely in me, uh, or that uh, aspiration to share what I find useful. Um, that said, uh, coming to the actual discipline of sitting on a cushion and staring at the ground for hours, <laughs> it's not for everybody. So. In our tradition, there isn't sort of street corner proselytization per se, uh, but there is, you know, we have a program and we'll publicize it. Is that proselytizing in a certain sense? Absolutely. It partakes of the same energy. Of course. And that said, I'm not, uh, I'm not being negative about someone who goes to door to door and says, you know, whatever their particular spiritual message is. I have a lot of respect for that. Mm -hmm. But this person feels that what they feel most strongly has given meaning to their life uh, dictates to them that they need to go out and express that. I may find it irritating, I may find <laughs> it amusing at times, uh, I may find it disturbing, but there is something really, I think, worthy of respect in that they're doing something that's uncomfortable. You know, they could be lying at home, chilling with the soda and watching, you know, TV, but they're not. They're engaging with the world based on their, con on their conscience and their, uh, their aspiration. Um, so I think to dismiss proselytizing as a negative is, uh, again, I think it's weak-minded. Mm -hmm. I think it's not going into the phenomena and looking at what is going on there. You know, there can be aspects that are really grasping and fixated, and uh, that can have uh, energy of aggression to it, uh, but it can also be a very pure thing. 
And it's just like that moment that Joshua was describing in the car where you have that choice, you know, stay with space, go into uh, emotional fixation and claustrophobia. Everybody has that. And proselytizing, someone who is proselytizing is experiencing that as well. Yeah, well, it's something I would, I would definitely notice is there's a difference between which message I would consider positive and which messages I would be. Again, you were, you were talking about right and wrong, maybe being a, a, a less than perfect construct, and so probably positive and negative falls under that. But yeah, I would, I would sort of say it depends on the message in my, to my mind. And that is to your mind, with your construct. Mm -hmm. And there are judgments that you're making about that based on what you consider to be your insight into somebody's mind and experience. Mm -hmm. As long as you hold that in your mind, that you understand, you're making those judgments based on your perception mm -hmm. and the way you construct the world. And if you feel confident in being able to judge somebody, that's your call. Uh, definitely, I come from an empirical perspective. I, I mm -hmm. start with that as, as my reference point, just as anyone has to make a decision about what reference point they're going to make for that, whether it be an empirical, metaphysical view or you know, what have you. There's, there's probably too many to list on that front, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, no, I, I definitely, definitely see that as something that's, that's an important thing for, for skeptics to know. It's not black and white, you know, what's going on in terms of the, the, any given individual and that incredible soup of uh, experiential, emotional, intellectual constructs. There's so many uh, flickers of uh, everything from very rigorous to extremely fuzzy uh, logics, uh, opinions, examined and unexamined uh, values. I find it pretty much impossible to be able to say black and white, good, bad, useful, not useful, because the mind is such a flickering, uh, volatile, moving target. Um, and I think it's more interesting to think, rather than, for example, good and bad, to think in terms of confusion and insight and energy. So, you know, what people might conventionally call evil or bad could also be viewed as whatever mix of confusion and wisdom plus energy in there. The more confused and the more juice energy there is there, uh, the harder it is to work with. But for me, that's a more interesting uh, construct for making assessment. You mentioned there were, um, I don't, we may have already talked about this and I just, <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. But you mentioned there were several sects, and there are several, several types of Buddhism. And so, so this here is the Shambhala sect, is that correct? Shambhala Buddhism. Shambhala Buddhism. So how does that differ from other types? I, th I think here the goal, if we, if we had a goal, would be to create an enlightened society. And... Um, Generally, you know, it's okay. Buddhism is um, sort of sometimes seen as a way of uh, achieving enlightenment, you know, that it, that's the goal, you know, for an individual to achieve enlightenment. In Shambhala Buddhism, it's uh, the quality is to how to, how to create, uh, so the base is that you, you have this sort of loving kindness for your own mind. You put your you put yourself in a cradle of loving kindness. Your own emotions, so you're not you're not trying to get rid of them, right? 
So uh, that's, that's the sort of this doorway of the stupa, the cease doorway. The stupa is the gateway of loving kindness. That leads to the gateway, the red gateway, which is the gateway of uh, compassion. So if you've touched into your own vulnerability, then as soon as you see somebody else, you realize, because you're in touch with that, you realize everybody is, is in this human condition of unrealistic expectations about the human condition, you know, that something should work out. You know. And so you have uh, empathy. And then that leads to, in a larger sense, uh, this green gateway, which is uh, sympathetic joy. So you have this sort of compassion expanded into the whole world. And then, say, you, uh, you um, watch Fox News. And you have sympathetic joy, and then you watch Fox News, and you, you just get overwhelmed, and completely, especially if you're sensitive. You get overwhelmed by the whole situation. The, the antidote to that is this yellow gate, which is the gate of equanimity, which is sort of being a witness to the world, but not being uh, the savior of the world. You know, it's sort of not being distant from the world. But if you're in a quality of equanimity, and then you sort of become, well, that's the stupid Democrat, a stupid Republican, stupid, you know, Catholic, stupid Jews, you know, and and so then you, what you become is you've distanced yourself from the from the world. So the antidote to that is actually coming back to this blue gate, this loving kindness, actually touching into your own vulnerability. So if you've done that, then you create a, a good, good family, a good culture, a good community. So that was our interview with Josh and Michael. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was really interesting. There were a lot of, ponent, uh, a lot of components that I really enjoyed. Um, one of them being the, the shrine, the, what would you call it? The, the statue, the fountain, the whatever you would call it, out front. Oh, uh, uh, that one. Right, yeah, yeah. With, with a bunch of different that offerings, was, with a bunch of different ideas. Yeah. I found that to be very interesting because there are beliefs everywhere. Right, you can find whatever belief you want, no matter what asinine belief you have. I guarantee you, there's a crazier man than you who's in charge of that said belief. But there seemed to be a lot of involvement from the culture when you were talking about those those shrines, those those pieces, those whatever you would call them. I don't know. I don't know what the word would be. They they essentially what they looked those like little artifacts. Well, what uh, pass on our listeners, but they looked like was a fucking bird bath, right? They were a bird bath with yeah. shit shoved in them, right? Yeah. And there was anything, right? I, I, what I want you to do is I want you to look in your pockets right now and any item in your pocket could be represented on the shrine, right? Yeah, there was all kinds of like 
stupid junk like brick brick knickknacks. Right, right. There was a tokens. blockbuster card. There was there were toys. There were little toys like little yeah. finger puppets that one might own. There were there was almost anything. There were things. Uh, there, there was, was a lot of, of coins, even even like dollar bills shoved in exactly. here and there. Well, there was an awful lot of things you would have on your body. Things like jewelry, things along anything you would have in your pockets. Things like uh, things like rings. Things like uh, like again coins. Anything you would have in your wallet was a was a good example. But there was a lot of essentially there were a lot of people who stopped this spot and put something down. Whatever that might be. And people had brought little statues. There were jade statues of elephants or jade statues of whatever. But there were also impromptu gifts. Things like the money, things like the the uh, the best example is the blockbuster video card. It was sitting yeah. that was sitting in someone's wallet and they wanted to leave something. And they're like, fuck, fuck Blockbuster. I just <laughs> subscribed to Netflix. Exactly. Let's, let's not pretend that they have stores open anymore. <laughs> but, and I was in, I don't know about you, but I was trying to read something deeper into that. Like, oh, this is kind of like symbolic of like they're giving up some sort of material possession. Right, or, right. And it was a kind of offering to something. And he was, and then the guy who built it, Joshua, I think, said, well, no, I just kind of built this little bird. Right. He didn't people mean just started for it to be that. Right, there. exactly. <laughs> Well, and what's what's funny about that is that there, you do imbue these items with importance. You do feel like, oh, there was this intention behind them, which is really interesting as a skeptic. This this agency that you imbue on these items, mm -hmm. they have this intense sense of meaning. That correct or not, I mean, we didn't meet anyone who had put something in that bird bath, right? We we didn't talk to anyone. We didn't we no, didn't know we didn't. what people meant. But there was someone who left a blockbuster card and they could have left it because their friends were leaving something and they thought, hey, what do I not need anymore? I subscribe to Netflix. Who gives a shit about blockbuster? <laughs> they also could have left something on the opposite end of the spectrum. They get up to that that shrine, that birdbath, that whatever it's called. And they say, I have to leave something. Yeah. This and is a big deal. Something ha of me has to sit wow. here. Something meaningful, something right, significant. Right, exactly, exactly. And and significant or not, that's something you carry around in your pocket every day. There is some... Depth isn't the wrong word, right? But that... When you, when you carry around Release. something... When you carry around something every day, it is more so than, than whatever, right? If you went to a store and picked up whatever item... Uh, a few times there were things that you could have picked up in, in one of those machines at the end of Kmart or whatever that you put a quarter in, right? There were more than one items there, right? Mm -hmm. If you bought that that day, it wouldn't have had any value, right? A, uh, a spider ring, a uh, frog that bounces around, right? One a of those sticky toy. hands. Exactly. <laughs> well, sticky hands have value. Let's, let's not pretend those aren't awesome. <laughs> Oh, meanwhile, I have five silly putty, putty eggs sitting at home. <laughs> silly putty eggs. I used to awesome, go nuts for those way. sticky hands. Aren't they? They're <laughs> fucking cool. They're, to at least you, there is some meaning to that. And so there are people left, again, blockbuster cards being the obvious example. But things like, I, I could have sworn I saw a spider ring. One of those frogs back in the day that if you were seeing them, that you push down on their butt and they bounce. Yeah. You ever seen that? Uh -huh. You push down on uh -huh. them and they jump from place to place. There was one of those. 
But there were also things like jade statues. There, yeah. were, uh, there were things that clearly had been thought out, that someone had clearly said, I'm going to leave something at this altar, at this shrine, at this yeah. birdbath. That weren't completely worthless. Exactly, that no one had put up with. Well, and, and there, was, there was fucking cash. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there was money. I mean, I don't know what it would have been if you'd have sat down and, like, taken it. You know, it was nine dollars. I was, or I was tempted. There was like, there was something that wasn't one dollar. <laughs> it was like, it was like a ten dollar bill. At no, least. yeah, there was. And I was tempted to like pluck it out and see like what kind of idiot would put. $10 there was, in there was cash sitting around. There really was, and. And it makes me wonder, like, what do they do with it? Do they collect the cash, like, every exactly. few days? Or do they just, like, let it sit well, there you know and then, like, degrade? Or Here's what has to on? go beyond that. I mean, even if they take the cash, like, surprise, surprise, this is a white, rich fucking nation, right? Assholes are bringing money up to the goddamn mountain and throwing it on a goddamn pile. Yeah. And they let the shit rot. Or be taken, or whatever that is. That is not something that would happen in a culture where food is scarce. They don't yeah. do that bullshit. There aren't people starving who've decided, hey, you know what I'm gonna give up? It's ten dollars. Well, and really, not to be cocky as an American, but ten fucking dollars, right? There are there are countries where that's that six months worth of food. Yeah, right? exactly. Give that to uh, give that to Oxfam or something. It could it could exactly. feed like no. eight Ethiopian people for you know a month. Well, I mean, you've got someone like uh, like Norman Borla, and if you if you want to call me and say how he's an asshole because he was involved in gen- genetically modified crops, what I want you to do is I want you to stick your head. This is always this is always golden. Whenever you say what I want you to do, whatever follows that is just perfect. What I want you to do is I want you to stick your head between your knees because what you're gonna want to do is kiss your own ass and fucking suck me, Norman Borla. Might be the greatest human being who ever lived. Um, I just got an amen from across the room on that. Is what I want you to do, anyone who disagrees with me, because he was involved in gen- genetically multi- genetically modified crops, right? He was involved in that process. GMO. Exactly. What I want anyone to do, anyone who's going to send an email, who's going to send a letter, who says that Norman Barla wasn't the second coming of the Lord. What I want you to do is I want you to tell me what other human being in the history of humanity, anyone, there's, it's open season on this. You find me a name, I will kiss your ass on the air. I swear to God, I will, Uh-oh. I will lick your, I will lick your metaphorical web address taint. That is what I will do on the air if you find me one human being who has saved a billion lives. That's billion with a B. Billion billion with a b with a b not a million a billion you send me that letter i will lick your metaphorical internet taint do you want to disagree all right doug find me the name no doug Doug agrees agrees. we've got a group of people around here pass the mic around find me the human being who has saved a billion lives and then, and then give me, give me the Nobel Peace Prize. What do you got? You got fucking uh, Obama on that list, and I, I voted for Obama. I, I like him Gore. a lot, but exactly, <laughs> exactly. And Al Gore. You got what? Uh, did Mother Teresa hit that list? You've got. I hope not. Did she? Mother Teresa is a raging cunt. Read Christopher Hitchens if you disagree. But there are a lot of people who did a lot of good. You guys can't see the air quotes. But did a lot of good. 
and whatever that meant, they moved on. Now there's a gentleman who saved one-sixth to one-seventh of the world's population. He's responsible for saving one billion people from starving to death. Not, not getting shot in the head. This isn't a quick death. This isn't like, oh, hey, I was alive one minute and bam, I'm dead. This isn't that. This isn't painless. This isn't. These are people who would have their tongues would have swelled, their 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 fucking faces would have shriveled. Uh, I mean, one of the things that happens to you when you're when you're starving to death is is viral infections rip through your body. I mean, things like like most of us carry some form of uh, of oral herpes, some kind of cold sore that just tears your body to shit when you're starving to death. These are people who Norman Borla saved from being ripped to hell by oral herpes. <laughs> That's how good this human being was. And what I want you to do is I want you to tell me why GMO crops are so bad that it trumps the saving of a billion lives from the worst death humanly possible. And I'd like you to send letters to me at jeffrey.g.davis at gmail.com. And, and, and put, a, put a message on there like you're an asshole or, or, or go fuck yourself. Doug, you're getting antsy. Did you want to say something? All right. Number fucking one. Uh, go, go check out the bullshit, the Penn and Teller. Have you guys ever seen that? I've seen bullshit. I don't think I've seen the Have Norman you seen the bullshit with the So Penn and Teller are playing, and I'm going to step on the joke here. So if you don't want to hear it, go download the Penn and Teller. Go, go look it up, whatever it is. But I'm going to step on the joke here. They're sitting there, and they've created a game where they deal out cards, and the cards have the greatest human beings in history written on them. There's like Mahatma Gandhi, and there's Einstein, and there's Descartes, and all these amazing people written on them. And what you do is you bet on who has the best hand. And, uh, and Teller picks up a hand of five cards. And there's a, a group of five amazing individuals on it. Penn, on the other hand, picks up one card, and it's Norman Borla. And, uh, and he says, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet all the chips. And he goes, but, but you know what? I'm, I'm going to bet everything that's in my wallet. And, and I think I'm going to bet my grandfather's watch. Let me take that off. I'm going to bet my grandfather's watch. And here's my car. Let me throw my keys on this pile. And, uh, and Teller goes, see any more cars? Uh, or, you know, he gestures because Teller doesn't talk. Of course. But he gestures, see any more cars? And he goes, no, no, I'll stand pat. He goes, I just need, I need this one person. Norman <laughs> Borla saved a billion fucking lives. Find me the man who did that. And I don't care. I, Get after me on fucking Frankenfish. I will tell you on the next podcast why you're an asshat. Send me the goddamn letters. Send Seth the letters. He loves letters. Send Seth the letters and tell me why I have a problem. Norman Barla, best human being who ever lived in terms of in terms of numerical value. Uh, there's no one who's ever done what he did. And uh, that math means something. It really does. It really does. What about, what about this? I will see your Norman, Norman Borla, and raise like you. There's like three H's and or three G's <laughs> in that world. It's 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 very like what Polish? Would that be the right version? Meanwhile, a pole saved a billion people. So your jokes aren't even right, people. And raise you, Fritz Haber and Karl Bosch. Let's hear it. Who developed the Haber Bosch 
process of nitrogen fixation. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So, yeah. how many, I'm sure they saved probably comparable lives. In a terms billion? Of you think a billion? They, you, because a of them. A billion. Billion with a them, B. You could, you, that, fertilizer wouldn't exist if it weren't for them. I want, what fertilizer I want you to do is I want you to go through the alphabet. A, B, <laughs> C. That's a billion, Seth. Billion people they say from starving to death in the third world countries. You do. You have to rock that. There, there is a component of, of Mike Myers. The, the GMOs couldn't grow without the synthetic fertilizers, the synthetic nitrogen fertilizers. All right. I'm, I'm going to admit that, that Seth has way more knowledge on this than me. <laughs> Find me the numbers. Find me the guy. I the numbers. But in, in, terms, in terms of people who have won the Nobel Peace Prize. But I, I, I don't think that... The U.S. population would be closing in on seven billion were it not for Haber and Bosch. The world fixing, population fixing seven billion, or the U.S. population on what three thirty, three hundred thirty thousand, what or three hundred thirty million? What world, is it? World pop. World seven billion. Yeah. No, I'm sure. I mean, there are guys who would definitely put their influence in, but literally, you have to think one seventh of the world is alive because of one dude. <laughs> Who sat in a, I mean, what he essentially did was he sat in a, in, a, in a fucking lab and he created wheat that grew faster and it grew wider and it fed more people. And a billion fucking people. A billion. A billion. A billion people. That's a, that's a, that's a billion with an M, people. <laughs> that's, that's almost a billion with a TR, people. That's. That's insane. <laughs> Find me the name. Find me someone else who can be credited with a billion lies. Uh, I just said that. I just heard Fran Drescher. <laughs> <laughs> and while the nanny was... Haber Bosch, right? Was ridiculous. Fritz Haber, Carl Bosch. Well, the nanny was ridiculous. Um, yeah. All right, so my battery's getting low, so let's wrap this up. All right, let's, let's move on. So what, what the fuck were you talking about when I started ranting about Norman Borla? Something about Buddhism. How did you, how did you tie Norman Borla into Buddhism? I don't know. I don't know. So what I love about Norman Borla... So thanks for listening to Leaders in Free Thought, everyone. No. Here's, so what I'll, say, uh, what I'll say about the podcast, and this is something Seth can cut off or not cut off, uh, whatever he wants to do is they were very nice people and they they really wanted to put across their point and while i disagree with their point i i don't have their particular understanding of creation i don't have their particular understanding of logic and i don't have their particular understanding of what lifestyle is best they really were more generous than any christian group or any any group beyond that that we've tried to be involved with right am i am i insane there well, well, I'm trying to think of Christian groups that we tried. Didn't we send a letter to... <laughs> the point being... <laughs> the point being they were willing... They were willing to put... They were willing to put their... No, they're not on the line. They were willing to, to be honest. They were willing to be direct. And they were willing to be judged on that. Indeed. Thanks what i also listening. like to throw out is that... Uh, Women are not as good as men. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Uh, I'm going to keep betting. <laughs>